Psalm 28, um, on page 438 of your Pew Bibles. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not refuse to hear me. For if you are silent to me, I shall be like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplication as I cry to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me away from, this, from the wicked with those who are workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbours while mischief is in their hearts. Repay them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Repay them according to the work of their hands. Render them due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will break them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the sound of my pleadings. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts. So I am helped, and my heart exalts. And with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is my strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. The second Bible reading comes from Matthew 11, verses 20 to 27, and that's found on page 792. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his deeds of power had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. At, the t at that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, good evening. If we haven't met before, Richard's my name. I'm an assistant minister here. Uh, it's my pleasure to uh, open up God's word for us this evening. We're going to continue uh, in this series we've been working through uh, in uh, Matthew 10 and 11, thinking about what it means to be sent, what it means to be uh, on mission with Jesus, uh, sent into the world by him. Uh, and tonight we have uh, a particular uh, opportunity, actually, for uh, Jesus to explain to us what it looks like to believe in him, to believe in God, to believe in that mission that he sends us on. Uh, now, a few weeks ago, someone uh, who uh, is uh, quite uh, insightful, uh, someone who uh, really likes to ask the questions that really matter, uh, turned to me as we were sitting and catching up and said, uh, do you ever find it hard to believe? Uh, when you think about it, that's quite a confronting question for someone in my line of work, actually. Uh, my job, in part, is to help you guys think, actually, about what it might look like uh, to believe in God, what that might look like in a life. Uh, but of course, the answer for me, the answer that I uh, gave to this person who asked this question uh, is exactly the same as I'm sure it is for most of you, even if you've been a Christian for a long time. Yes, yes, of course, sometimes it's hard to believe. Uh, in fact, I reckon it's true for every follower of Jesus that sometimes uh, trusting that God is doing what he says he's doing, trusting that God uh, really actually does love you and care for you and have you in his hands, 
our circumstances and our experiences uh, really make that harder to believe at some times than others. They can really impact our sense of God's presence and power with us. Just last week, we looked at the, the passage directly before the one we've had read for us tonight from Matthew and saw how even one as great as John the Baptist had his own doubts when he saw Jesus' ministry about whether or not this guy really was the Messiah who he had proclaimed, the one he'd prepared the way for. Belief is hard sometimes. There are all kinds of reasons why that might be the case. And in the passage that we've heard read tonight, uh, Jesus tells us a little bit more about belief, about what it's like and actually how it is that we can uh, hold firm to our belief, how we can stay trusting in God even when the circumstances and experiences of our life make it hard. Jesus tells us three things in this passage about belief. He tells us two things that belief is not and one thing that belief is. Uh, he tells us firstly that belief is not about evidence, at least not only about evidence. That belief is not about competence, but that belief is, in the end, about relationship. And as we unpack each of those three things, Jesus is going to show us tonight uh, where to find the spiritual resources that we need, not to be thrown into unbelief when we have experiences that make it hard to believe, but actually how to grow more deeply in our belief, in our trust in God through those hard experiences. How to actually go deeper into the heart of God when circumstances and experiences make believing hard. Uh, so we're going to get straight into it and begin by thinking about uh, the fact that belief is not only about evidence. Now, the passage that Jamie read for us uh, begins with some of the heaviest words, I think, that Jesus ever speaks. Uh, here, Jesus continues on from what we read last week, talking about the way that he's been received by the people to whom he's been sent. And in verses 20 to 24, he speaks directly to some of those who are closest to him. Uh, Capernaum, the town that he, uh, that he calls down woes upon, the town that he calls down judgment on, is actually his adopted hometown. It's the town where he established the base of his operations for his ministry throughout Israel. Uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida are neighbouring towns that would have been well known to Jesus as well. It's just a short walk kind of around the beach on the Sea of Galilee to get to those two towns from Capernaum. And Matthew tells us that most of Jesus' deeds of power had been done in these towns. Uh, presumably because Jesus spent most of his time there and actually kind of couldn't just, uh, just couldn't help himself. Uh, Jesus is one of those kinds of guys who he sees a need and he goes, I've I got to do something about that. So he's hanging around Capernaum all the time as his base of operations, kind of as his, as his hometown, uh, and he sees people who are sick. He sees people with evil spirits. He sees people who need to be fed. And so what does he do? He heals people left, right and centre. He drives out evil spirits. He feeds them. What Matthew is telling us is that no one got to see as much of this or to see it as up close and personally as these three towns that he names. And what Jesus does is to go and to compare these towns, uh, his own neighbours, people who may even have kind of seen him grow up, people who've seen his ministry from the very beginning. He compares these towns to some of the most hated Gentile towns in all of Israel's history. And what Jesus says is that those Gentile towns actually come out on top. Now, you see, the cities of Tyre and Sidon were home to some of Israel's great enemies, people who throughout Israel's history had committed all kinds of wartime atrocities against God's people. And Sodom was a city that to Israel represented everything that was wrong with the Gentile world. All the worst, most heinous sins you can think of, Sodom was where they found their home. But to Capernaum, Chorazin and Bethsaida, Jesus says... It will be worse for you on the day of judgment than for those towns. 
Why? How could it possibly be worse for Jesus' own hometown than for those towns on the Day of Judgment? Well, Jesus makes the reason very plain. He says to them, if the deeds of power done in you had been done in those filthy, rotten Gentile towns, they would have repented. They would have believed. Jesus and his disciples have been proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is near, that God was finally coming to clean up the mess that sin and evil were making of his world. And the deeds of power that he does were signs of that coming kingdom. And alongside the message of the kingdom of God coming near, they were to cure the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. That compassion that Jesus showed to the crowds as they came near him and asked for his help and that he called his followers to emulate was a sign that God really had drawn near. But even though Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida had seen Jesus up close, had seen God do mighty miracles through him, they still hadn't believed. They'd seen the sick cured and the dead raised and demons driven out, but they refused to recognise that God himself was showing up. And so the charge that Jesus levels at them is this. You've got all the evidence right before you. You've got all the evidence right in front of your eyes of what it is that God is doing in me, of the kingdom that he's bringing. But it hasn't changed anything. Now, we like in our culture to think of ourselves as rational people, as people who weigh evidence and live accordingly. Uh, But it turns out, actually, when you uh, think about it and look into it, that evidence is a pretty funny thing, that reason is a pretty funny thing as well. They were really not all that objective when it comes to assessing evidence. Uh, Social psychologists the world over have been writing about this for years. Uh, But one particularly interesting book that's been doing the rounds in the last few years, uh, it's a book by a guy called Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind. Uh, He's subtitled it, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And he notes in his book that reason is really more like a lawyer than a judge. Uh, You see, we don't use our reason to make impartial judgments about facts. We use our reason, actually, to make arguments in favour of our own beliefs. We see a piece of evidence and our instinct isn't to go, how is this going to change what I think? Our instinct is to go, how can I use this to build an argument for what I already believe? Perhaps the best way to see this in action is to uh, turn up to the uh, offices here at church sometime during the week and wander into Andrew's office while he and I are having some kind of debate about economics, particularly. And see Andrew and I sitting there looking at the same evidence about what's going on economically in our country, but both of us kind of just go, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. This is what we should do instead. Uh, You can look at the same piece of evidence, actually, and just come up with a completely different idea about what should be done, about what it actually means. And it's something like that, I think, that seems to be going on in Jesus' adopted hometown. Uh, His remarkable deeds of power, the evidence that the kingdom of heaven was near, that in Jesus God was finally beginning to mop up the mess of sin and evil in the world, all of it was just explained away, forgotten. It changed nothing. Somehow those remarkable things that those towns saw Jesus do have just kind of been incorporated into the way that they already thought about the world, no questions asked. What Jesus is highlighting for us uh, here is that belief is not, in the end, about evidence. Uh, Evidence matters, of course. Evidence matters a great deal. Uh, And there's heaps of very credible, very rational evidence for the Christian faith, for the existence of God. Uh, Being a Christian is entirely rational. Uh, Even the belief that God raised Jesus bodily from the grave, perfectly rational to believe that. 
Uh, I'm convinced, as are a great many people who are much smarter than me, that the historical evidence that we have points in that direction, that actually that's a perfectly reasonable thing uh, to put your trust in as something that you can believe is true. Uh, and just as importantly, actually, for those of you who are, are Christians, you've got evidence of God's own uh, work in your own life uh, and the life of your sisters and brothers. Uh, for those of you who aren't followers of Jesus, you've got evidence right in front of you in this room here as well, as you see the way that Jesus has changed the lives of those who are sitting around you. Evidence matters, but evidence by itself isn't enough. Evidence has to be interpreted. And the chief lens through which we interpret evidence, the lens that can confound as much as it illuminates, is our hearts. As we've seen throughout this section of Matthew, uh, there's a message that Jesus and his disciples are proclaiming, a message that we also proclaim, the message that the kingdom of heaven is near, that Jesus is the Lord. And Jesus' powerful deeds of compassion go hand in glove with that message. They kind of, they back it up. That's the outworking. You see the kingdom and its presence through what it is that Jesus does for those around him. But it's important not to forget that the, the message that those deeds actually support. The kingdom comes about through a king. The good news, the message is that Jesus is Lord, that God has put him in charge. That evil and sin and death are now running scared, not because of anything we've done, but because he has beaten them in his death and resurrection. And of course, if there's a new king in charge, that means that you and I are not in charge, doesn't it? And we tend not to like that. Our hearts instinctively recoil against that. We've heard about this an awful lot, actually, as we've worked through these chapters. Uh, and it's one of the chief reasons that Jesus says that those who uh, he calls and who he sends on mission are like sheep among wolves. It's because the message that we proclaim says to people, you need to get on board with someone else's plan for your life and for the world that you're part of. Uh, and it's a great plan. It's a really good plan that Jesus has. It's about bringing justice and peace and a healing and wholeness to the world as God actually takes back rule from the sin and evil that destroy. But of course, to be part of Jesus' mission means to be part of Jesus' mission. He's the one who sends. He's the one who calls the shots. And to join him in it means doing what he says. But of course, in our culture, the one thing you're not supposed to do is to tell someone else how to live. And that just goes hand in hand with the message that we proclaim. People will say, you can't tell me how to live. People will get offended by it. But the fact of the matter is, if you want what Jesus offers, then you need to be on board with Jesus' way of living. And so our desire to be our own master, the master of our own destiny, our desire in our hearts to be the ones who determine the shape and direction of our lives, that can be something that actually forms a blockage that stops you from seeing clearly what it is that God is doing in and through Jesus. That's what's going on, I think, in these towns that Jesus mentions. They don't want to actually have to change everything and follow Jesus, as he calls his disciples to. And so actually you interpret that evidence a different way. Uh, you kind of go, yeah, great, thank you for healing that disease that I've had for my entire life in an instant, but I've got it from here. You know, I don't want to actually have to live out the consequences of that. And so the natural question for us to ask is this. How do we get past our desire to be masters of our own lives? How do we get past that blockage to actually seeing what it is that God is really doing and instead let Jesus lead and rule and shape our hearts? The first thing we need to do in order to answer that question is to hear the second thing that Jesus tells us about belief in this passage, that belief is not about competence. In verse 25, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Now, I don't know if you can remember the last time that uh, someone called you a child or said that you were behaving childishly. Uh, it's generally not a good thing. Uh, normally you don't enjoy being called uh, a child. Usually the person who's saying that to you thinks that you're a bit of an idiot, a bit ignorant perhaps, uh, someone who doesn't really get how things work, someone who can't really get your own life together. On the other hand, we quite like to think of ourselves as wise and intelligent, and we like it even more when other people think that we're wise and intelligent. Now, the wise and intelligent are the people who run the world, who have great success, who are the most fun at dinner parties, who get good ATARs. But according to Jesus, the important things are hidden from the wise and intelligent and are revealed instead to infants. Now, when Jesus says uh, these things there in verse 25, he's talking about uh, all the stuff that he's been teaching in these last two chapters, actually. That the kingdom of heaven is near, that Jesus is the Lord who's driving evil and sin out of God's world, and that we can be part of that mission. And in the case of uh, the towns of Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, the wise and intelligent have just failed to understand what it is that God was doing. They've got a blockage. They've got something active in their heart that stops them from seeing what it is that's going on. Instead, as Jesus reports uh, to John the Baptist in the section we read last week, instead it's the blind who receive sight, the lame who walk, the lepers who are cleansed, the deaf who hear, the dead who are raised, and the poor who have good news brought to them. Now, it's not the wise and the powerful, but the weak and the vulnerable who get what it is that God's uh, doing and get off the sidelines, actually, to be part of it, to join his mission. Why is it that the wise and intelligent just don't get it so much of the time? But the infants do, the weak and the vulnerable. They understand what it is that's going on. Well, I think the reason is that the wise and intelligent are the kinds of people who've got everything sorted. These are the people who've got life pretty much worked out. They've got it under control. The wise and intelligent know how the world works and they navigate it under their own steam, however seems best to them. Uh, now, having your life kind of all together isn't actually a bad thing. Uh, Jesus isn't saying here that wisdom and intelligence are bad things in and of themselves. But what he is saying is that wisdom and intelligence can be misguided. Uh, that's the consistent testimony of the scriptures, actually. Uh, the scriptures throughout say that wisdom is a great gift from God and you should get it if you can, provided it's wisdom that's from the right source. Uh, Job, uh, in the midst of his uh, suffering, asks the question, where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? And he lists a catalogue of all the different parts of the earth, the oceans, the land, mining in the deep. No one can find wisdom anywhere in the world. Instead, he says, God understands the way to it and knows its place. Similarly, in the Psalms and the Proverbs, we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, Jesus is in that same tradition here. Uh, he isn't saying that if you're smart, if you've got things all sorted out, if you like, life is going pretty well, then for some reason you just can't get God. It's not impossible. It's not possible. Uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, growing the intellectual capacities that God's gifted you with. There's nothing wrong with uh, your life going pretty well. But the source of the wisdom that you have matters. What Jesus is saying is this, that people who think of themselves as wise and intelligent who find in themselves a source of wisdom, who find in themselves a measure by which to assess the evidence that's before their eyes. People who are wise and intelligent in that way are actually in a really spiritually dangerous place. Uh, here's why it's dangerous to be in that place. It's because if you reckon that you've got life and the world all worked out, 
uh, then it's only a short step really to deciding that you've got God all figured out as well. I think we see this a lot in our culture, actually. You hear people all the time who reckon that they've worked out God, that they've got him sorted. Uh, You hear people say things like, if God was really loving and powerful, then he would end suffering. Uh, If God really existed, then he'd give me some kind of sign of his existence. Uh, They're big statements, big questions that have uh, compelling answers, I think. But often the point of that kind of wisdom, that kind of logic being put into practice, is that it means you don't have to take God seriously anymore. We've worked it out. We know what God is like, so we don't have to engage with him anymore. We can just put him off to one side. Uh, And I think the truth of the matter is that that kind of thinking can creep into your life actually even as a Christian. Uh, It can be especially true if things are going pretty well for you, at least uh, if on the surface life is ticking along the way that you would like it to. It's pretty easy, I think, actually to go, uh, Jesus, I thank and praise you that you've forgiven my sins, that you've saved me, that you've made me part of your mission. And then we're explicitly or not to go, I've got it from here. Thank you very much. I'll sort out the rest. Uh, Who needs God when things are going well, basically? If things are going well, then it's quite possible that I've just got that God thing pretty much under control. And since you've got God all figured out, you don't really need his help. You can just get about your own business. Uh, As I say, I think you you can fall into this kind of thinking even as a Christian, actually. Uh, And I reckon one sign that you might be uh, thinking that way, that your uh, heart might be actually seeking to live your own way despite your your trust in Jesus, uh, is that your uh, devotional life is probably a bit of a mess. Uh, Because the fact of the matter is, uh, if you really think that you've got God figured out, then why would you need to have him speak into your life? Why would you need to engage him in prayer if you've got your own life under control? Uh, The good news of the kingdom is easily hidden from people who've got it all together. And that's the point that Jesus is making here, I think. Uh, The thing is, of course, and all of us really know this, it doesn't have to scratch the surface all that much to know that this is true, Uh, The thing is, of course, that none of us really have our lives all together, do we? Most of us, even who have it all together on the outside, still have a bunch of mess going on inside, fears and anxieties and obsessions that plague even the most outwardly successful. Uh, Sickness and death can take everything from us in an instant. The reality is, if we're honest, that we're actually totally helpless, that we're totally dependent on our circumstances which could change at any moment. And that's why Jesus says it's infants, not the wise and intelligent, to whom God reveals the truth of the kingdom. Uh, Let me show you what I mean. Uh, As most of you know, uh, I have a one-year-old daughter. Her name is Maggie. Uh, And speaking of uh, evidence and assessing it objectively, she is the greatest child who has ever existed. She is the cutest, the most intelligent. Uh, She is really quite beautiful. Uh, But to be honest, she can't really do very much. She just kind of, you know... She sits there, she crawls around, she eats stuff. Um, She's learning some new skills, right? If you point to, if you uh, say the word ball now, she'll point to the nearest ball that she can find. That's pretty cool. Um, She's crawling around now, which she couldn't do three months ago. Uh, But really, in the big picture, there's not actually all that much that she can do. Uh, She's completely helpless. She's totally dependent on Alison and I for everything, for food, for shelter, for clothing. Uh, If it wasn't for us, she just actually wouldn't last very long at all. But there's one thing that she can do, uh, one thing that actually she does pretty regularly, and I think it's this kind of thing that Jesus is getting at when he says that God reveals the good news of the kingdom to infants. 
Uh, the one thing that Maggie knows to do and can do and does frequently is this. Let me show you. She quite frequently will just go. <laughs> have, you, have you seen kids do this? It's not just Maggie. Other kids do it too. She's pretty special, but she's not the only one who does this. You've seen kids do this, right? And you know what it means. It means pick me up. It means come and get me. It means I'm stuck, I'm hungry, I'm sad, I just want to hug, I want to dance to Adele, which is her favourite thing to do. That's normally what, normally what this means for her. Come and pick me up. I can't do what it is that, that I want to do right now. I need your help to come and do it. Uh, Maggie can't do very much, but she knows uh, that if she just kind of looks around for Alison or I or another adult who she knows and raises her arms, that we'll come and grab her. And what Jesus is getting at here is that, in reality, we are all helpless little spiritual children. We need God. We can't get our own lives together, no matter how hard we try. And the people who get God, the people who understand and receive the good news, the people who get to be a part of his work in Jesus to rid the world of evil and sin, they're the ones, actually, who know that they need him. They're the ones who are ready to come to him and simply say, carry me. Now, I know, actually, there's a bunch of you uh, in this room right now who have some really heavy stuff going on, uh, for whom life in recent weeks and months has just really, in many ways, been a total mess. You've got hurts that are weighing down on you, circumstances pressing in on you, all kinds of confusion about what's happening in your life and why. Uh, you've got no illusions, actually, about having it all together. You know that you need whatever help you can get your hands on. You know that it, what it feels like to be helpless and defenceless. That can be a really hard moment for belief, actually. That can be a really, really hard moment for trusting that God's got your back, that he is at work in the world in Jesus to rid it of evil and sin. But it doesn't have to be that way, actually. Because there's a real opportunity for you in that moment to actually grow deeper in belief, to draw nearer to God instead of drifting further away. You see, it's precisely at your most helpless that you're most ready to understand what it is that God has done and is doing through Jesus. It's when you're most like an infant that God's kingdom will make the most sense and mean the most to you. Uh, he doesn't want you to have it all together. No, he wants you to come to him the way a little child goes to her father. If you're that person now, if you're someone who has stuff going on in your life that you just can't get under control and you're feeling the weight of it, what you need to know, what you need to hear is that that's exactly the right place to be to learn the depth of God's love for you in Jesus. That all he wants from you is for you to stretch your arms out to him and ask him to lift you up, to say, I'm exhausted, I'm down in the dust, I can't get up, please lift me up. There's nothing that God desires more from you than for you to bring all that mess and hurt and confusion to him and actually just hold your arms out and say, carry me through this. You see, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, is never about your own competence. In fact, kind of the point is that you're not competent. The point, actually, is that you don't have it all together, that you need Jesus to actually deal with the mess in your life, with your own sin, to bring forgiveness, to bring healing and wholeness. And so what Jesus calls you to do is not to try and get it all together and then come to him with all the kind of boxes ticked, but actually to come to him and ask him to carry you. That experience of coming to God and asking him to carry you is what Christians have characteristically called grace. 
And that's exactly what Jesus says here too. So in verse 26, having thanked the Father for revealing the kingdom to infants, he says, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You see, to take hold of what God is doing in Jesus, to be part of the mission of resisting and defeating death and evil and sin, that's not a matter of your will at all. It's not a matter of your own competence. It's not a matter of getting your life together. It's all about God's will. And his will, his good pleasure, is to be gracious to you. It pleases him to invite you to be part of what he's doing to remake the world and to answer you when you cry out to him. Not because you've got it together, but because he loves you and wants you and wants to make you new, to make you whole, to make you fit, to be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus on his mission. And so there's two things that Jesus has shown us already about belief, two things that it's not. It's not about evidence, at least not only about evidence, and it's not about uh, competence. But if our hearts so often keep us from believing, and if we're so helpless spiritually, if we're just little children, where can we find the spiritual resources to lift up our arms and ask God to carry us, even when believing is really hard? And to answer that question, what we need to do is to hear the third thing that Jesus has to tell us about belief in this passage. Not what belief isn't, but what belief is. That belief is about relationship. See what Jesus says in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, that verse there is kind of worthy of a, of a 90 to 120 minute sermon in and of its own right. Uh, that verse plums some of the absolute depths, actually, of who God is, of the reality of who God is and how he relates to his world, of what it is to follow Jesus. It tells us a number of things about who Jesus is, who God is, why it matters, how we respond to Jesus. Uh, too many things for us to get into here and now. Uh, it tells us that the only way to know the God who made you and me in the whole universe is to know Jesus. And Jesus is making an enormous claim here, actually. Uh, that despite all the religions that exist, all the philosophies that exist in the world, the only way to know God is to come through Jesus. Uh, Jesus is claiming implicitly that he is God, that he is, as Matthew has said earlier in his gospel, Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. Jesus is claiming that if you want to be connected to the source of all life and love and goodness, then you have to be connected to him. Uh, that claim, of course, to be the exclusive way to know God is confronting to many people. It's downright offensive. It's one of those reasons that following Jesus is like being a sheep among wolves. There's lots to say about that claim, lots to say about the deep theology of that verse. But I want us to just focus on one of those things tonight. Uh, and that's this, that as confronting and offensive as this might be, Jesus' claim to be the only one who can reveal God to you and to me is actually what makes it possible for us to believe, even when believing is really hard. You see, Jesus has already contrasted the wise and the intelligent with infants, showing us that belief isn't about evidence or competence. Instead, he says belief is all about relationship. And particularly, he says it's about his relationship with God, the relationship of a son to a father. Uh, you see, throughout human history, all kinds of wise and intelligent people have sought to figure God out. But Jesus knows God in a different way, in a unique way. Uh, one Bible scholar puts it like this. Uh, he writes that Jesus had come to know his father the way a son does. That is, not by studying books about him, but by living in his presence, 
listening for his voice and learning from him as an apprentice does from a master by watching and imitating. You see, only Jesus can really show us what God is like because only Jesus really knows God in the way that matters most. Only Jesus knows God personally, not as a construct, not as an idea, but completely and intimately as a father in a perfect relationship. And the fact of the matter is that if, if we're going to actually hit those bad, those rough patches where we're most childlike and not have the make-believe even harder for us, but actually be moments where we cry out to God and ask him to carry us, the kind of knowledge that we need, the kind of thing we need in our heart is a personal knowledge of God. We need to know that he is uh, trustworthy, that he really does have our back, that he really will carry us. We need that kind of knowledge that Jesus has as a son of his father. Relationships are complicated. I don't know if this... Um, is it just me? I don't think it's just me. Relationships can be pretty complicated. And especially relationships where we trust someone else to carry some of our burdens. There's real risk in opening yourself up, in being vulnerable to other people. Uh, most of us at some stage have been uh, hurt by a friend or a family member. Uh, sometimes someone uh, who, when we needed the most, uh, wasn't available to us or wasn't interested in helping. And so to open ourselves up and ask someone else to bear our burdens can be a terrifying thing. We worry that we'll be rejected or that it'll change the friendship or that our burdens might just be too big for someone else to deal with. And you know what? I think it's easy for us to project all those kinds of fears onto our relationship with God as well. To worry that he'll eventually just get fed up with us. That his kindness will run out. Or that the burden that we're bearing, that we long to, uh, to take to him and have him carry for us, is really just too big, too overwhelming, maybe even just too embarrassing to actually take to God. And so we're going to need real courage to be able to come to God like a little child, to ask him to carry us. And the way to find that courage is to see that Jesus has taken that risk for us. Jesus has taken the risk of being vulnerable in relationship, of carrying everything to the Father. Jesus, the Son of our Heavenly Father, the one who knows him best, has borne the relational risk of carrying our burdens to God. Jesus took all those things that weigh us down, all those things in our hearts that get in the way of seeing what it is that God's really doing, all those things that stop us from getting on board with his mission. He took all our evil, all our sin, all our mess to the cross. And there he himself experienced the relational consequences. At the cross, as he carried our burdens, he was cut off from the Father that he knew in perfect intimacy from all eternity. And at the cross, he cried out our cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He faced that risk that stops us from being vulnerable with God and with others. And he overcame it so that we might draw near to God with confidence and ask him to carry us just as Jesus has carried our burdens. As we see Jesus' arms outstretched on that cross, we see God's arms outstretched toward us as well inviting us to lift our arms to him and to say, carry me, help me, bring me through this. Uh, life can be pretty hard sometimes. There are things that weigh us down, things that make it hard to believe in all kinds of ways. But Jesus has taken the risk of believing for us so that we can know his father as he knows him, as children of our heavenly father, children of God freed from fear to be fully devoted to him, to love him, to love his people and love his world, just as we've seen him love us in our Lord Jesus.
And if you want to be part of his mission, if you want to be someone who actually can live through the burdens of life by asking God to carry them for you, then you need to keep going back again and again to Jesus and his cross to see in him your burdens lifted up, that risk taken and overcome so that you can come to God and take your burdens to him. Let's pray that he'd help us to do that. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus you've overcome uh, the risk of believing, that in Jesus you've shown us uh, that belief isn't first and foremost about evidence or about